Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. On today's podcast, we're talking with Christian Lafarette and Ben Van Dongen, who have a special relationship. They're friends, they're both genre authors, and they are both publishers at Adventure Worlds Press, based here in Windsor. But before we start talking with Christian, we have just a little bit of a topic to discuss. Um, Why is hand-selling books important? Why are things like literary festivals, which Sarah, Irene, and I have all been uh, part of, like Bookfest Windsor, an important experience for established writers, readers, and new writers. Sarah, what do you think? Oh my goodness, where would I start? Um, Well, as a retired bookseller, you can really make or break a book with um, hand selling. And um, it's often independent booksellers who find books that really need to be lifted up and sold. And then they tell their friends. And this was even in the days before social media was invented. And it just seems to keep happening. And sometimes word gets back to the rep, hey, they're starting to hand sell. So it's really great. So and for an author, it's a bit awkward because it's sort of um, a toss between does an author pester a bookseller to hand sell the book? or the other way around. And usually the answer is no, authors don't pester the booksellers. Just write a great book that that makes them go nuts. Um, And Irene, what do you think about the literary festival? You've been involved with Bookfest Windsor, I think, longer than any of us. I mean, I really feel that that personal connection that an author can establish with the audience is so important. We we live in such a disconnected time in a lot of ways, and it's just wonderful to have that avenue for in, uh, for for people to be able to listen to uh, an author read, ask questions, find out more about their process, discover things about the book that they would not otherwise have known. And it's great for authors to receive that feedback from audiences too, face to face in a room, you know, especially if there's an intimate setting involved. I find that so many writers, you know, write alone in a room and feel kind of sad. And this is a chance for them to have some kind of social reintegration. So it's better than having like a, a, a support worker. And it's, I suppose, a form of therapy. I um, I laughed the other week when Michelle Obama, peace be upon her, had her wonderful book launch in Detroit, and it was described as an intimate conversation with Michelle Obama because it just made me laugh that it was like at the uh, the dojo, yeah. the uh, Little Caesars Arena. But I think that book festivals generally allow a more you know genuinely intimate experience, and that's really great for authors and audiences. Yeah, I have to say, as, as somebody who's been to a few literary festivals as a rep and, and as, a, as a fan, um, Windsor is really unique in that it is much more intimate. The authors have much more access to the audience and, and vice versa in, in a very safe way, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a very safe and supportive environment. And uh, it's pretty unique. I think it's also an interesting bridge. I think for a lot of authors that that whole idea of selling their own book or hand selling it is just terrifying. So a literary festival gives them an opportunity to do that. 
But that is actually one of the things that you and Ben are pretty well known for is that you aren't afraid to go out and talk to your public and hand sell your books. Can you tell us a little bit about how you guys got started at that? Sure. Um, well, uh, being an author of a having basically an author of indie books and indie publishing, um, you know, nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows who Ben is. You know, unless we go out and get in front of people, they have no idea who we are. And because of that, um, I always look forward to get in front of as many people as I can, as often as I can, so that I can, they can see who I am, talk to me, learn about my product, learn about my book, what I write. And um, the vast majority of my sales come from that, being in that kind of a situation. And I should have mentioned, this is Christian Lafayette that's talking with us right now. And Christian, do you want to just, I remember having to sort of sit down for a minute when you and Ben told me that you, what your sales rates were like, your, your, what, your, what sales you have so far by hand selling. Yeah. Um, so you're like asking like how many books we've sold yeah. that, going that route. Um, I mean, we don't keep great track, to be honest, but I mean, we've sold thousands of books that way. Um, over the last few years, just in person, just buying directly from me or from Ben. If I can give some perspective, for a while, the average publication rate of a, an average poetry book started at 500. So it, it's it's pretty incredible. And and where do you do these this selling, this hand selling? Um, you know, it, it's a lot of work. Um, a lot of people think that once they are published or have a book that it just starts to sell so you you know it's it's finding events finding um being genre being a genre author there's we look for um conventions genre conventions comic conventions horror conventions anything that's going to be like-minded um audience and that's what we search out and we we try to become guests and if we can't become guests then we we become a vendor and we get a table and we just go to as many things as we can if we can drive there we're going that's awesome. What a great commitment. And by the way, I think, isn't the, the threshold for a Canadian bestseller something like 5,000? Yes. So, yeah, together you guys have probably achieved that. Yeah, we're, we're definitely close. Yeah, okay. So, now, how did you choose your genre? What drew you into horror? I've, I've always been a fan of horror. Um, I, always, I always have a funny story that basically it, my, my love of horror comes from bad parenting. Um, I was, as a child, my, my parents, both of them, would just uh, my older brother he's five years older than me he'd let me, he always wanted to watch horror movies i was way too young to watch them but they would always let him pick and so he would always pick the most horrible horror movies you can imagine and so i would watch them at a very young age and i think that just like ingrained in me a love for all things spooky when you're writing do you start with a character or with a world um neither actually um i would say i start more with an event um or a scenario and then that kind of, especially with horror, it's like I think of something scary. doesn't matter who the character is, who the protagonist is, or even the world. It's what's the thing that's scary. And then once I have that locked down, it sort of informs the other two. How is this different from science fiction, do you think? Well, um, you're going to get a big, long answer from Ben on that one. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it is different in that. You know, in in a way, and that so it's more of a an immediate moment that I like I said is what I look for. Whereas for something like science fiction, it's more about a broader idea, um, and then you know the idea starts to you you the moments and and characters and places come out of the idea instead of a specific in the here and now situation. 
One of the reasons why I think you sell so many books uh, hand-to-hand, it sounds like hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) It kind of is. I think it's because people really pick up on the energy, not only the the quality of the books, but the energy that you have with your business partner and fellow writer, Ben. What's it like writing and publishing together? Um, It's it's like any kind of, uh, you know, partnership, really, in that you have um, a lot of you know, you're, it's two different people, two different personalities. So there's there's some clashing. Um, we've gotten really good at. We both have strengths. So when we're publishing, for instance, like I had come from an art background, so I do a lot of the design. I always do the cover work. I do everything like that. He comes from. Um, um, so he's been through a lot of schooling, including um, some publishing courses and things. So he has a lot of programs and for putting together layout and uh, constructing a book in that way. Um, really, it's it's just kind of like. Unless one of us is overly passionate about something, we're pretty flexible on pretty much everything. Were you guys friends before you became publishers together? Um, not really. Um, before we became publishers, yes, but not before we started writing. Um, that's how we, we had a mutual friend that was a writer, um, and he introduced us because we were both writing. And that's how I met Ben, was through this other friend. And uh, we, we did, and right out of the gate, we had started a, a website that was like a blog and it just was going to be for short stories. And so we just started putting stuff up. And as time went on, that friend of ours sort of fell away and it just left the two of us. And we decided to move past the blog and start actually writing books. Wow. So it's a it's a friendship based on storytelling. How cool yeah, is that? Yeah, yeah, it totally is. I, I mean, we, like I said, I, I was, did not, was not aware of him at all before that. Wow, that's great. And now we're going to uh, hear a little bit of your writing that we uh, captured at a recent Biblioasis reading. Thank you very much, Christian Lafferet. Oh, actually, no actually, if Christian, if you could just set up the story for us a little bit, that sure. would be helpful. Yeah, sure. Um, so the the story um, I read from was called uh, "The Doubling." It's from a short story collection, science fiction, called uh, "No Light Tomorrow." And uh, the science fiction in this book is a lot more like Twilight Zone or like Black Mirror for people who are more current, I guess. Um, and it's about a guy who one day realizes that he, one day a, a strange phenomenon happens and there's all of a sudden two of everybody. So, the doubling. Bob leaned close to the window. He watched the countryside roll past, the blur of green cutting through his reflection. The forecast called for rain, and already the tumultuous sky peppered the train with drops. He craned his neck to peer up at the gray vista. The clouds hung like a shroud, blocking the sun completely. He felt like garbage. He hadn't eaten a proper meal in weeks and couldn't remember his last decent night's sleep. Even buying the train ticket had developed into a faded moment, a memory indistinguishable from the events surrounding it. Everything in the last week bled together in his mind. Lost in thought, he startled at the sudden realization there was a person standing in the aisle beside him. Um, is this seat taken? He turned to see a young woman. She was pointing towards the empty seat next to him. Oh, uh, no, go ahead. The woman smiled and sat down. Thanks. I wasn't expecting the train to be this full. No problem. He was not happy for the company. It distracted him from his thoughts. He hoped the woman would put on headphones or take a nap. She fiddled with her purse for a bit before pulling a rolled-up magazine from within. Bob took it to be a good sign. Hopefully she'd leave him alone. Excuse me, the woman asked as she gently touched his arm. You seem really familiar. Are you on TV or something? He suppressed a groan. Even after ten years, people still recognized him. Nope, you must be thinking of somebody else. He could tell by the look in her eyes she was not going to let that be the end of it. Oh, huh, I guess. It's just that 
I swear I've seen you somewhere before. Well, you're wrong. I'm nobody. The woman nodded, but continued to stare. Wait, are you? Are you one of the doubled? The excitement in her voice was undeniable. There it was. He sighed and tried to twist even further away from her. You are! I knew I recognized you. That is so crazy. I just watched the Dateline special about the doubling last week. I can't believe it's already been ten years. He let out a series of fake coughs before telling the woman he needed to use the washroom. She stood up so he could pass. When she opened her mouth to speak, he coughed some more. As he moved along the unsteady train, he couldn't help but meet every set of eyes along the way. How many other people had seen that Dateline? How many, right now, were sending messages to family and friends reading, You won't believe who's on this train with me. The last few steps to the bathroom were the hardest. Bob wanted to run, but knew that would draw even more attention. He once again cursed his decision to take public transportation for this portion of the trip. Too many potential witnesses. He stepped into the cramped space of the train's washroom and locked the door behind him. A sigh of relief passed his lips before he reached out and turned on the tap. He cupped his hands, letting the water pool in his palms before splashing it on his face. The cold felt nice, refreshing. Taking a steadying breath, he stared into the mirror. It started like any other Tuesday. His wife, Elle, woke up early and got ready for work while he changed Hannah's diaper and heated her morning bottle. By the time the baby finished her milk, Elle was dressed, leaving Bob free to hop in the shower. Can you drop Hannah off at daycare? Elle asked. I have to go in early and set up the stats for the housing board uh, presentation. Sure. Awesome. Love you. She planted a kiss on his forehead. He in return patted her rear as she walked away. <laughs> hey now, none of that. Her mock scolding was accompanied with a wink. Oh, come on. I hear your husband's a total loser, madam, and that you're in the market for a real man, he said, puffing out his chest. Elle smiled. Well, you heard right, sir. Maybe tonight, if my sad excuse for a husband doesn't come home, I can show you my bedroom. While loading Hannah into the car seat, Bob waved to Elle as she backed up the driveway and disappeared up the road. He knew her first stop would be the Tim Hortons down on 5th and Maple. The woman couldn't make it until noon without her morning coffee. Bob cracked open an energy drink, his preferred form of caffeine. The d- it was probably a monster, by the way. <laughs> the day was nice, sunny, but cool. Bob pulled into the daycare parking lot. Even though he and Al called it a daycare, the large sign posted over the front of the building insisted it was actually a school dedicated to early childhood education. As far as he was concerned, it was a daycare. Although Elle usually dropped their daughter off, it wasn't completely unusual for him to do it. Walking through the squat structure, he exchanged polite greetings with several women who worked there. He wasn't sure of their names, but saw them often enough to give a friendly smile. Hannah's classroom was located near the back of the building. Bob talked to one of the three women responsible for the children in the room before sitting his daughter on the padded floor next to a pile of multicolored blocks. The woman, he was pretty sure her name was Ada, waved goodbye and assured him they would take good care of Hannah. The moment he stepped out the front door, Bob knew something was wrong. The beautiful blue sky was now a sickly green. The air, comfortably cool earlier, had grown downright cold and very dry. A shiver raced along his body, leaving an uncomfortable feeling clinging to him. There was something else in the air, besides the chill. It felt charged. A strong, unexplained need to get out of the open space of the parking lot urged him towards his car. Reaching a hand into his pocket in search for his keys, he noticed his fingertips tingling. It was an odd sensation, like pins and needles. The feeling spread through his body. When it reached his head, it erupted into a skull-splitting headache. He let out a pained yelp, the fillings in his teeth vibrating. Above him, the green sky shook. He was mesmerized by what was happening, despite the piercing pain in his head. 
The phenomenon extended as far as he could see, leaving him disoriented. He was forced to lean against a nearby silver SUV to keep his balance. The shaking intensified. It was as if the very air around him was being torn asunder. Bob dropped to the asphalt and covered his head with his arms. He could feel the world around him contort and expand. His screaming was quickly gobbled up by a rending din which culminated in a violent snap. The air wave of a shock wave of air rippled across the back of his shirt. Ears ringing, he rose on unsteady legs and stared in awe at the clear blue sky. He was vaguely aware of other people stumbling around the parking lot, but he paid them no mind. His first coherent thought was, for, was concern for Hannah. The front door seemed an almost impossible distance away, especially on rubbery legs. In reality, he'd only walked a few meters from the main entrance before the sky fell. He reached for the door, but was cut off as another man beat him to it. The stranger turned to look at him. Bob was struck dumb. The man was him. He didn't just resemble Bob. He was identical. They were even dressed the same. He knew the expression on the man's face matched his own fear. He backed up. His double did the same. His mind shot through a thousand different questions, all of them with impossible answers. The stranger began to position aggressively in front of him. Bob knew the man was going to attack him, so he beat him to the punch and threw a wild, looping fist, connecting squarely with his jaw. He watched, stunned as his double tumbled backwards, all but flattening a small bush next to the entrance. He did not wait to see if the man got up. Instead, he yanked the door open and darted into the building. Inside was a lesson in chaos. Nearly all the adults were screaming, fighting, or in two cases lying unconscious on the linoleum floor. Ada came shrieking down the hall, blowing past him and slammed into the front door. She hit it so hard that, that instead of swinging open, the glass panes broke under the pressure and both her arms shot through the, through the shards. A dozen lines appeared on her exposed skin. Blood started flowing almost instantly. The woman, somewhat unfazed, simply pushed the smashed door open. She left two bloody handprints along the frame and ran into the parking lot. Moments later, Ada ran past him a second time. This version of the woman repeated the first mistake, but lucky for her, the glass was already gone. And that's where I'm going to stop it. Thank you very much. And Van Dongen of Adventure Worlds Press, a very noted local author. Ben, how did you choose your genre? What drew you to it? Uh, science fiction was always something that interested me. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it is other than science fiction is a lot about ideas. Uh, it's a lot about possibilities. It's, uh, you know, g getting a little more academic. It's kind of like a, a mirror of what's going on in society and you know, what we're afraid of, what we're hopeful for. So I, I think a lot of things drew me to it. How do you balance the ideas and the story in science fiction? Um, it, it's difficult. It's certainly a challenge. Uh, the, the best authors put the ideas first and then you know hopefully the writing will carry the rest of it I, I certainly have leaned my more recent books have leaned more on the on the plot than the ideas um so they're a little more action heavy but i certainly try to make sure there's a clear idea at least one clear idea in there about you know what i think might be coming what makes a great science fiction character Ooh, uh, Fish Out of Water is pretty classic, but that's for a lot of genres. But, you know, someone who can introduce the audience to the world and, and the differences. Um, also, I'm, I'm very fond of uh, having a confident character who is not necessarily the protagonist, who, you know, can pull the protagonist along and make sure that they, they 
get their hands dirty and they get themselves kind of steeped in the world. And you talked a little bit about plotting. What kind of tools do you use to plot your your stories in your books? Oh, I'm I'm the worst for plotting. Uh, anytime I've ever tried to plot, I completely ignore it. Um, everything I write kind of comes in the spur of the moment. I tend to have an idea of where I want to go. I, I know like a starting, I know an ending, and maybe a couple of points in the middle that I think could be uh, nice places to visit. But uh, I've tried um, sitting out and writing plot points, you know, even chapters. Oh, in this chapter, this happens. And I completely ignore it. And how do you work out um, the length of you? Because you've written short stories as well as a full-length novel, right? It's... Uh, well, I have, I've written short stories and novellas. Okay. I'm, I'm still working on the novel. <laughs> you um, do have a novel in the drawer. I do, yeah. Okay. I'll have a, I have a first draft written that I may or may not go back to one day. But um, I, I found starting with short stories was the easiest because I, I didn't know what I was doing. So um, I, I wasn't sure what, how long a story would end up being. Um, but through practice of doing a short story collection, of course, with Christian and uh, a couple of novellas, I've learned more, uh, you know, the ideas and the plot uh, kind of can roughly come out to a certain length. You know, um, bigger stories sometimes need, you know, B storylines or more characters, but generally a single idea can usually get you a pretty good short story and if you beef that up with a couple of characters you're looking at a novella in terms of your your actual practical processes of writing you you obviously like every other writer you have a day job so is is sort of choosing a shorter genre a shorter format part of that sort of you know as taking your writing in times when you're not working um, your day job i don't think so um i'm very lucky in that i do uh, have a lot of people I know a lot of other authors who are in the similar position as me and we've we all work well in the same room together so we tend to plan writing sessions and that that really helps moving it forward I think the the shorter stories and the novellas uh, come more from me wanting to explore all of the ideas that I have I mean I I one of those writers who does not have a shortage of ideas and I want to really plow through as many of those as I can. And part of it also comes from something you spoke to with Christian about all the events that we go to. Uh, if you go to the same event two years in a row and you don't have a new book, you're not selling anything. So that's kind of where the novellas uh, came from. So it's actually also almost a production process. You feel like you need to keep things in the pipeline in order to stay fresh. Certainly, yeah, definitely as as a self-published, some of them are self-published author and um, as somebody who's striving to, to kind of grow my brand, which is such a horrible sounding thing, but is such a necessity nowadays. Um, so, you know, working on the novel to hopefully uh, get that dream, you know, the golden the brass ring of a publishing deal and a publisher, uh, and in the meantime, just kind of in the trenches, plugging along. So practice makes production makes perfect, right? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> I, I, you know, you certainly strive to make the next book better than the last. And I know some people who um, are maybe more perfectionists than I am and spend years and years working on single books. And sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, for me, the the next book is the chance to fix all the mistakes I made in the last one. 
Now, you have another interesting uh, sideline as well with your Adventure Worlds Press. You also have a, a wonderful partnership with Cheesing in Toronto. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that got started and, and what you're working on? Sure. Um, that came from um, doing a lot of events and kind of not saying no to anything early on um, and being lucky enough to meet a couple of writers, um, namely Nick Cutter, and um, he has a relationship with Cheesine uh, Press out of, or publishing, sorry, Cheesine Publishing out of Toronto and invited Christian and myself up to Toronto to do one of their monthly readings. And uh, in meeting the people who organize and run the publishing company and the series, um, we kind of found some kindred spirits and they suggested, hey, do you want to do this kind of thing back home in Windsor? And of course, not saying no to anything, we said yes. Uh, and it's been a pretty cool relationship since, um, you know, being able to bring paid readings to the city and try to, you know, encourage other genre authors who sometimes don't get the love in Canada. How do people get involved with that series if they're a genre author? Uh, easy ways to just contact me or contact Adventure Worlds or Christian Lafayette. And, uh, you know, we're always looking for readers. Um, it, we, we do it quarterly-ish, about three or four a year at Fog. Um, and uh, it's actually been harder to find readers than you would think for a, for a paid reading. I totally get that. Yeah. They're very busy. Yes. And they're, they're busy, and it's it's hard to get people here. I mean, with they're not promoting a book, then they're home writing a book and mm -hmm. dealing with family. So, But it's great that you do that. And just tell us, what is unique about the, the cheese series? You, 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 you're looking at um, genre publishing, you said. Can you describe a little bit more of that? Um, sure. It's specific to genre writing, so uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror, uh, to a certain extent, mystery, crime. Um, which is which stems from the uh, parent publisher. Uh, that's kind of what they do. Um, and it also, uh, they get a lot of funding from grants and things. So that being able to have a focus like that helps them in that respect as well. Um, but very interestingly, um, because I do have uh, an older brother who is a musician who has had some success, that's, I know a lot more about that world than I do the writing world uh at least i did so when i started approaching doing events i approached it the way a lot of musicians do um and so the chi series is very similar to that in its own nature they do have a musician each each uh event so they do like a reading and a song in between and uh so it's it's more more like going to going out to see a band or a musician play at a bar than necessarily something at Biblioasis, which is wonderful in its own, um, but a very different vibe. Speaking of Biblioasis, we recently recorded a bit of Ben reading at an Adventure Worlds press uh, launch at Biblioasis, and we'd love for you to sort of set up the clip that our audience is going to hear. Sure. Uh, this is the first in my novella series, The Thinking Machine, and uh, it's about... Um, uh, a guy who lives on the outskirts of, you know, giant future city. Um, and again, a fish out of water story. He gets taken in um, on a quest and uh, meets somebody who um, 
takes him in under under her wing, but may or may not be on his side completely. And uh, I, I read a section uh, where she's kind of sending him out on his first real mission and to kind of meet somebody who's going to give them more of a clue as to where he can go in the future. This is Tall Man. Bell pointed a crooked finger at the picture. He runs the small-time crime in the neighborhood. He's connected, but not as dangerous as he wants people to think. He will have security with him, though. The picture was of a young Asian man looking over his shoulder. He wore a red suit with different colored swirls cascading down the fabric. His hair was spiked, adding to his height. Zed thought of the young man on the train who forced a fierce expression he couldn't back up. Bell switched to an overhead map of the area. He has an office in the back of a restaurant a few blocks away. The map zoomed into the, into the spot. He spends most of his time there. He'll know who we have to see next. He isn't part of the local syndicate, but he pays, pays up the line. Zed stood and threw on his jacket. Follow your display, just call it up. Bell smiled. He left the apartment, and Bell's voice came over the implant as he descended the stairs. You should be fine, but don't push too hard. He has a reputation to keep. Ask him how to find Harmony. Zed thought the woman sounded more alive in his ear. Creasing his brow, he wondered if it was an effect of the implant or the situation. Should I ask how you know these things? You can. Zed squinted with effort and brought up the map on the display. It took two tries and made his head swim, but it was easier than he had expected. He marked a path, The marked path hovered in front of him, and he followed it. Words appeared over places he looked, describing and commenting on his surroundings. Good food popped up next to a place that looked like it could have been run by roaches and rats. Do not enter. No access was posted in front of an alleyway. Zed avoided it. Every block had at least a few virtual signs commenting on places or displayed by people. One woman advertised something that made Zed blush. He followed the marked route through the milling people and tried to stay on task. The sun was already sliding behind one of the huge buildings, cutting off the natural light to the street, the temperature falling. By the time he was on the right block, it was an artificial night. He tensed and felt a trickle of sweat run down his back. Neon signs caught his eyes and yellowed streetlights pushed the shadows together at their edges. Zed kept his expression rigid, but broke the demeanor to jump out of the way of a bucket of sewage tossed out a window. He recomposed himself and gave a general scowl to the street. He trudged the rest of the way to the restaurant, where he could find Tall Man. The front of the building had a torn awning that said Ao's Asia, corrected to Chow's Asian Cuisine in floating letters. The prompt suspended over the sign read, Watch Out. A menu was stuck to the door. All the writing was in the same symbols as Yin's cart, but the implant translated it for him. He noticed that they served rabbit and licked his lips. He decided to try it if he had the time. The door creaked as he opened it, and a chime sounded from somewhere in the back of the room. Two large men stood up from chairs stationed on either side of the door and blocked Zed's path. A woman in an apron scurried over, brandishing a wooden spoon, and yelled at them in a language Zed didn't understand. The implant supplied the English version, but it came out all, garb all garbled. In the corner of Zed's vision, it said a slang used wasn't in Bell's databanks. <laughs> You, too, failure to translate. Stop bothering the customers. I have to run a failure to translate business. <laughs> she rescued Zed from the men and directed him to an open table. He was the only customer other than two men dressed in suits like the ones at the door, sitting at a booth in the corner. Hello, fine customer. What are you hungry for? Zed thought the translation needed some work. But he sat when the woman pulled out a chair for him. Rabbit? He shrank back when he spoke. 
He didn't know how she would understand him. Good choice, very fresh. I'll bring it right out. She disappeared back into the kitchen, and a pretty young girl came out with tea and a sprout-fed pastry. Zed smiled at the tea, remembering the tasty brew at Yin's. He took a sip and smirked. It was good, but Yin's was better, holding to the claim. The suits at the door watched Zed closely, but the group in the corner was busy eating and laughing. Zed looked around the restaurant while he waited for his food. It was run down, like everything he'd seen in the neighborhood, but it seemed like the woman tried to keep it clean. There were stains on the trampled red carpet, but the spots were faded, as if someone attempted to scrub them out. The ornate pillars scattered around the place were cracked, and the paintings of snakes with big heads and fins were faint. "'Are you stopping to eat?' Bell said in his head. "'Just getting a feel for the place. Got me past the guards at the door,' Zed whispered into his tea. "'Don't get too comfy. You have a job to do.' "'Do you want me to bring you some home?' Zed clenched his teeth. He didn't intend to be mean, but her tone was sharp. "'Tall man,' Bell cut the connection, and a buzzing at the back of his head stopped. He sighed. It was as if a headache subsided that he hadn't realized he had. The door to the restaurant opened, activating the chime. Zed turned to see a young man dressed in a garish pinstripe suit walk through the dining room and into the kitchen. The men from the booth got up and followed, their meal half-eaten. Zed didn't think the guy looked very tall, but it was the same face from the profile. He took another sip of tea and tried to come up with a plan. One of the men who'd followed Tall Man stopped and stood in the kitchen doorway, and Zed could see past him. Tall Man spoke to the woman who greeted him. Zed focused, but he couldn't get the implant to pick up what they said. Either he didn't have enough control or it wasn't possible. The woman held the plate of slop that Zed figured was his food. He sniffed and decided to move. He was halfway to the kitchen before he knew what he was going to do. When he got there, the guard at the door put up his hand to stop him. The man's face was scrunched and his mouth fell open. Hey, is that my grub? Zed stuck his head in the door and pointed at the woman. Tall man shook his head, exasperated. We are in the middle of something. Go sit down. He kept his eyes on the woman, not bothering to look at the offending customer. I'm awful hungry. Zed pushed past the hand at his chest. In one motion, he spun the first guard around, took the plate, pushed it in the face of the second, pulled his revolver, and had tall man in a grip from behind, the barrel of his gun against his chin. Everybody freeze. Zed scanned the room. He smirked, amazed at how calm he felt. The second guard wiped rabbit stew from his eyes, but no one else moved. The man at the door hadn't closed his mouth. Who the hell are you? Tall man struggled, but Zed had a good grip. The not-so-tall man spat on the floor. I need some information, and then I'm gone. You are dead. Tall man looked from guard to guard. Not yet. Zed pushed the gun harder into tall man's chin, forcing a sound. Tell him to go have a seat. Tall man hesitated, but the click of the old gun's hammer made him nod at the men. Is there a back way out? Tall man gestured to the back of the kitchen. Zed tightened his grip by the action and pulled the man back, keeping the door to the dining room in view. He dragged Tall Man through the kitchen and out the back. That's where I'm going to stop. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. That's allright, W-R-I-T-E, insincity.com.